And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It's Saturday, October 15th. And this weekend, we have a guest, which will be really fun. Abigail Disney, you know, that Disney, that family. She's a filmmaker. She's an advocate. She has a famous last name. She is known to a lot of people around the world. She's out with a new documentary. It's called The American Dream and Other fairy tales. This is so interesting because this doc really takes a microscope to the company that her great uncle Walt and her grandfather Roy co-founded. And what she's trying to do, I think, is expose what she sees as larger issues in corporate America. So today in part one, we're going to focus on the Disney family and a little bit of Abigail's exposure to this idea of Disneyland. So without further ado, this is my interview with Abigail Disney. I want to understand what you believe to be the situation around income inequality in the preceding, say, let's say 10 years, because obviously we had the financial crisis, the Great Recession, and there was a movement afoot called Occupy Wall Street. And so what did you think about the issue or did you even think about the issue of income inequality or wealth inequality in the United States 10 years ago? I I was thinking about it from the time I was very, very young and came into an awareness that um, I had been favored in a way that I had not earned or asked for. Um, So I have been in struggle with the question since my 20s and 30s when I was forming my sense of politics and identity. And um, so the lack of fairness 
was something I just couldn't get my head wrapped around. I think it's partly that I'm the third one out of four children. And so, you know, fairness ends up being something you think about a lot. But uh, that's the time in my life when I started to engage with people who were in doing the work of improving neighborhoods and, and building rights and things like that. And so my entrance into um, an engagement on the issue was with poor people, people in neighborhoods, um, people organizing, people thinking differently about the world. And so my orientation to the issue was very much from the ground up and not the other way around. I've always been seen as a bit of a weirdo in my family. My mom used to say that a stork brought everybody else, but Abby came in a spaceship. And I'm pleased and delighted by that description. <laughs> um, but, you know, I would, I, would, I would look upon the family business as this thing that was so far outside of my hands or control or even identity. I mean, I spent most of my adult life running from that identity. But then all of a sudden, after all this work and time spent with all these different not-for-profits and thinking and talking and speaking out about tax structure and stuff, one of the workers read out, reached out to me personally. And, you know, I think I had said to myself, that has nothing to do with my identity. But of course, that was disingenuous. I mean, sometimes we're disingenuous with ourselves, right? And when he said, can you help us? And my first answer to him was, no, no, can't help you. That just felt so wrong. It felt really so wrong. And I couldn't quite put into words why. I just knew it was wrong. So I said, in the absence of knowing what to do, let me get on an airplane and hear it from you. I want to go back in time a little bit. So the business started as a as a film yeah. company first. And give us the timeline of like the film company to the beginning of the construction of the park. So you have in the 1920s, Walt's making those little seven minute things that go at the beginning of the, you know, the newsreel, the little thing, and then the movie. And, you know, he pioneered sound and he pioneered color and synchronization of music and, and picture when he made Snow White in 1938. It was, you know, just a ridiculous idea. You know, like people thought of animation as a seven minutes long and we laugh and that's the end of the story. But, you know, he made a film that was an hour and a half in full color. He invented a camera for that film called the multiplanar camera that had never been used before to make it have three dimensions. It's kind of extraordinary the amount of creativity. In the war, they kind of had hard times because there wasn't a lot of money um, coming in for filmmakers at the time, um, but they just kept soldiering on, soldiering on. And then they got to um, the early 1950s when he had another stupid idea, Walt did, which was like, well, what if people walked into a place that was a narrative? To me, that's the really revolutionary thing about Disneyland. It's a place, but it's a story. And it's an escapism. Like there is like you're coming off of this terrible period where essentially for 20 years, there's just pain. There's World War One. There's the depression, the crash, the depression. There's war. And now you're in the 50s and it's like, I want to escape reality. So it's like a story and and a place and something that I can step out of the real world and feel differently. It's partly about what they were coming out of. It's also partly what we were all heading into as a country, right? Because we were also headed into 1955 when the park opened. That's the year that Emmett Till is killed. So, so we're also pivoting wow. as a country in a very important way. And 
Disneyland was a place where everything was well under control. You know, you never felt like anything unpredictable or untoward was going to happen. And in order to do that, they really wrote race out of that story. And so they run this organization. When do you like what's your memory of like your early memories of walking into that park? You're the little Mm -hmm. girl. You're the boss's Mm -hmm. daughter and granddaughter. So what did that feel like for you? I mean, it's sort of weird also to ask that, because when you ask rich people these kinds of questions, they're like, I don't know, it was my life, you know, so it's, it's weird, right? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And that's why I use that metaphor in the film about being a goldfish. I mean, you just don't you don't know that it's any other way. But I will tell you that I remember grandpa used to take us in the in the cast member entrance. So we would go in sort of the side door to Main Street and, you know, he would park the car and they'd be sort of mobbed by the people who worked there who really loved him. He really loved him. He was a very sweet man. And that is not just me being a granddaughter with starry eyes. I've talked to people about this and and everyone says this about him. He was so warm and so genuine and he remembered people's names and he, you know, it was nice. And so I have incredible affection for the place. And um, because it's so central to my memories of my wonderful grandfather. So at that time, if we were to think about it, you have your grandfather and you have Walt and how are those employees and and not every employee because there's a zillion, but like the the rank and file people who are taking care of the park, the equivalent of the people that you interviewed in your film back then, they were very loyal. Why were they loyal? Were they treated especially well? Like what was the 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 ethos of the company then? Any job there, including sweeping the streets, was seen as a middle class job. Um, so it was paid like a middle-class job. My grandfather didn't want people working there who were just scraping by. He wanted people to show up there every day, not exhausted, not worn out, not cynical. He wanted people, including the people who were cleaning, to, to greet every day with a smile on their face. Because the way he understood it was that's what people came to Disneyland for, to be greeted with positivity and energy. And so a lot of what is so bulletproof about that brand was formed by that park, not by the films, not by the television, not by these, but by the way people walked in and they were greeted as the most special people in the world by every single person they encountered from the person who gave them their little soda to the person who took their ticket. It was like, everybody was happy. And the thing is like, everybody was probably not happy, but everybody sure was very convincing about seeming happy. And like part of what we use in the film is speech he gives on the 10th anniversary of the park opening, where he says, like, you are the lifeblood of this park. Thank you. And, you know, management says that a lot now, too. But in in certain way, and I don't know if it's just me with stars in my eyes, I really do believe that he believed that. And he was proud that what was mushrooming out from the inside of that creation was a whole series of lives and and middle-class houses and kids growing up and going to college and people having health care and money to retire on. He understood that that's how you make a world. Okay, we'll be back with part two of our interview with Abigail Disney tomorrow. If you've got a financial question or you've got an opinion about Disney, land, world, or anything else, give us a holler. Go to JillOnMoney.com, click the Contact Us button. Don't forget to let us know if you'd like to come on the air. While you're there, don't forget to pre-order the book. It's called The Great Money Reset. Okay, lift someone up today. It will make that person feel good and it will make you feel good. Grit, growth, grace. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. 